Welcome to Volunteer Plain Talk Podcast, the podcast for today's leaders of volunteers. Your host is me, Meridian Swift. Everybody, welcome back to the Volunteer Plain Talk podcast. This is actually part two of a two-part episode in which I chat with Paul Falkowski, who holds a doctorate and is passionate about helping folks in nursing home facilities. In the last episode, we heard about Paul's journey, how he got started in nursing homes and the great work he sees volunteers doing to stave off isolation. From that, Paul started his own organization, and now he has a vision that really coincides with the pandemic, and that vision is to designate volunteers as essential workers. So take a listen, and Paul will explain to you what he means by volunteers as essential workers. Hope you enjoy. My latest thing, in addition to the research articles that I'm trying to get published about this, Um, contacting uh, the Office on Aging, the Senate Committee on Aging. I'm putting a white paper together right now that I'm going to run up the flagpole. I don't know how far it'll get. Mm -hmm. And talking about essential volunteers. And there's a real push right now. Family members are pushing for essential caregivers. And this would mean someone designated in the family that would be allowed to come into the nursing home in the event of a quarantine or something. Mm-hmm. They would they would wear the PPE. They would understand the uh, guidelines, but they would be able to visit with their loved one. Well, my concern is how many people in the nursing home don't have family or someone coming in? What happens to them? And so could we have in the nursing home then, could we have three or four people that are designated as essential volunteers and their sole purpose would be the same to go in wear the protective gear they understand the guidelines and then make conversation and visits with people instead of you know of them just sitting in their room by themselves so that's what I'm, I don't know how far I'm going to get with that what I saw my experience with community 360 there are people in our communities in our towns that have the wherewithal, the uh, capability to learn and to make that kind of a commitment. I mean, we have volunteer firemen. We have volunteers walking into burning houses. Mm-hmm. We have Red Cross volunteers that are showing up at earthquake and uh, other kinds of disasters. Right. Why can't we have a cadre of volunteers that show up at the nursing home during a quarantine to make sure that everybody has had some contact? Because the poor activities director and direct, I mean, they're, I, I, God bless them. I don't know how they did it last year. I mean, trying to, if you have 150 beds in your nursing home and you're trying to make sure everybody has some kind of connection and it's just you and maybe, maybe a, one other assistant, depending mm-hmm. on, I mean, that, I know from talking with activities, they were ex- absolutely exhausted. Sure. Because you got quarantines of, of, residents to residents too and you're Mm -hmm. quarantining everybody from coming in so now you're isolated with your charges 
and how do you keep them occupied and active? Yeah. And, it's near uh, impossible. Again, so this isn't about replacing the activities director. They still have to do their job. Right. But it would probably be nice to have three or four people. And that's I would get feedback like that from the activities directors uh, and rec therapists. Where do you find these people? And just how much they appreciated that they could they would know, for example, that Mrs. Smith is getting a visitor today. And so I don't need to worry about Mrs. Smith. I can go down the hall and look at some other issues. Right. And so, you know, and that's the thing. I, uh, in a recent talk that I just gave, you know, how many re uh, real relationships can you be in at a time? I think it was uh, in L. Power's book. He refers to... Uh, authentic relationships, you know, and this goes beyond just weather talk. This is almost well becoming a confidant in ways where people are mm -hmm. sharing how they feel that those deep talks, you know, like for example, I remember residents asking me like, oh, what happens to me now? Where do I go from here? Mm -hmm. You know, so those aren't questions that you just answer that activities director. Can he or she do that with a hundred people? I don't think oh, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not well. No. Just mathematically, you cannot. Right. If you had this cadre of volunteers, that would be their sole training. It would be like, okay, you're not going to go in and call bingo. This isn't about no. activities, you know, group activity. This is about you going from room to room and just spending some time with people. Relationships. Yeah. Well, Paul, does – you know, you mentioned that um, – there's family members who want caregivers to be designated essential workers. Do you know what that is based on? Is it based on isolation? Is it based on socialization? What are they basing that on? Well, on the experience that everybody went through last year, you know, mm -hmm. can, if you can imagine <clears throat> uh, a family member who was visiting their mom, a daughter visiting the mom weekly or daily in some cases, now not allowed at all. In some cases, maybe through the glass, you know, she's standing, the daughter's standing outside and the older adult is, they're looking through the glass. In some cases, they weren't even allowed to do that. There yeah. wasn't even the opportunity to do that. And wondering from day to day, how is my mother doing? How is my dad doing? Is, are they okay? The stress of that, that alone affects somebody's health. And of course, we know that a certain percentage of older adults passed away, be, not because of the virus, but because of the isolation. They just, they shut down. So these family members now are looking in retrospect saying, we can't let that happen again. We need to have, there needs to be at least one person from the family that's going to be allowed to come into the nursing home, even during a quarantine mm -hmm. or a lockdown like that. And so to prevent that stress brought on by isolation. So, so there are statistics to actually point to. Well, I haven't seen any hard statistics. I talked to some uh, researchers and they're kind of estimating around 18% of the people that passed in nursing homes last year, it was because of isolation and not the virus. Wow. Okay. So that's still a pretty hefty number. You know, there's about that's a million a and a half. Mm -hmm. a million and a half residents. And so out of that, I, 
I, I think about a third. It was about a was a, I think I saw a statistic about a hundred thousand nursing home residents died last year from the mm-hmm. virus. And so maybe about 18%. So I don't know what that is. 18,000 something. I don't know. Something like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, and so far more than should have. And you can't, I get it. You know, there's the whole business of safety, you know, but, you know, it, they go overboard. And mm-hmm. um, I just read an article where um, a surveyor went into the nursing home and was, you know, going through the survey process and uh, saw that there was an outdoor garden. And so uh, she pushed on the push bar of the door to go outside, but it was locked. And so she asked someone on staff, the door's locked to the garden. Why is that? Well, somebody went out there and they fell. So we don't want that to ever happen again. So we've locked the door. Mm -hmm. And so the surveyor asked the person, well, has anyone ever fallen in the nursing home? And of course, have you locked the doors to the nursing home? And (laughs) so there's overboard. There's this, you know, and so I think there's that mentality that we we try to eliminate all risk at the cost of the welfare of the person we're actually trying to care for. True. Rob them of their uh, autonomy or their uh, sense of uh, uh, I can do things for myself and so and so on. And so mm-hmm. I think that's what's underneath. It's like an all or nothing kind of situation. I think we need to balance that. There has to be sort of a middle a middle ground to reach where mm-hmm. uh, the welfare is as important as the risk. Right. Anyway, so I think that uh, that's what's behind the families are looking at this saying, you know, somebody from the family should be allowed to come in. But your point yeah. is so many nursing home residents do not have family. They're either not alive. They're not in town. They're not around. They're, they're mm-hmm. absent whatever so what about them right and and so a highly trained would you would you consider um a certain type of training to designate them as essential workers yeah i think that uh again i think the screening process would be stringent they would have to know what they're what they're getting into and so uh, no you're not walking walking into a burning house but you're walking into a facility where there's something going on, whether it's the flu or COVID or what, there's something going on. So there's some risk involved. And then the background checks and, you know, the all going through, make sure that that's all uh, in order. And then face-to-face interviews, meeting with people, talking to them about commitment, that this isn't a one-time thing. This is, we need you to be there uh, weekly or whatever frequency that they would agree to but minimum at least once a week. And then for some period of time, I started with 13 weeks, but I just read, I was at someone's website. They, they calling for six months. Boy, I thought, boy, I thought I was strict. (laughs) (laughs) Six months. That's pretty heavy. That's That's uh, anyway, but it's a, it's a hospital and they're recruiting companion volunteers. And I guess that's the other piece to this uh, is that, this is happening in hospitals. It's happening in hospice. Mm-hmm. Why is it not happening in the nursing home? We have programs like HELP, Healthy Elders Living Program or something 
that uh, uh, Sharon Inouye created. I don't know if you're familiar with that. And mm-hmm. there's volunteers there. I think that's like 24-7. It's amazing. They're, and I think a lot of them are med students or pre-nursing. But maybe that's who we recruit for this, too. Maybe we can get some pre-nursing students. Yeah. I don't know. College students that are in pre-nursing or pre-med. They understand the risk. They understand uh, protocols and so on. And yep. maybe we recruit them. And then, of course, whatever training. I think the big thing for me is the relational stuff as far as the training. Yeah. Um, so I would I would take them through so, uh, a course uh, or a short course, a module, I should say, on uh, reflective listening. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that would be important uh, for them to understand that skill. Or if they're in a situation where it's nonverbal, then nonverbal communications. And I've got a great story. I had a volunteer. I don't know how they came up with it, but she was visiting a older gentleman in a nursing home who had had a stroke, had minimal language, and they worked out some kind of Morris code thing. He still had the use of his left hand or something, and they were they were tapping messages to each other. I don't know how, what in the world. I said, "How did you?" She goes, "We just figured it out," you know. And That's so, awesome. So. Again, this is the caliber of people. They're creative as well, I guess, would be another. Yeah, innovative and creative. They can think on their feet. Actually, uh, in our face-to-face interview would test for that. I would ask all these crazy questions. And they would look at me like, are you, did you just ask me that? You know, but then they would, you know, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? (laughs) (laughs) What does this have to do with anything? Right. You know. Well, if you could be anywhere but here right now, where would you be? <laughs> and the there, idea, is a, there is a wrong answer to that one. Yeah, right. But the idea is just to throw them off and then watch them yeah. see what they do with it. And the thing we don't realize, well, we realize about volunteers, but the thing that's not really front and center about volunteers is they have, unlike staff, Volunteers have the luxury, ability, whatever you want to call it, to actually focus completely on their situation. Yes. Um, I actually, just for tongue-in-cheek, I always reference Ann Gross, 1961. Nursing homes need volunteers. (laughs) She wrote this article in 1961. Wow. And the phrase that she used was, because they have the luxury of time. There you go. And uh, so, you know, when you're doing research papers, it's supposed to be like your references shouldn't be more than seven years old. But I always have this one in the 1961. (laughs) Just like, hey, guys, this isn't anything new, okay? (laughs) Right, right, right. We recognized this a long time ago. 60 years ago, somebody yeah, said this. And really, to me, uh, no offense to Ann Gross or anything, it's more the luxury of focus. Yeah, R- right. Yeah, exactly. because kind of the luxury of time almost implies, and I realize, you know, it's 60 years ago that she said this, and she no. didn't mean it this way. But nowadays, I think it means that, oh, they have nothing else to do, you know, whereas in reality, they have the luxury to be able to focus on, right. on the task at hand. Right. And that, so. Yes. That's good. But yeah. Good one. Yeah. So, so what are the, what are the, have you thought about the steps involved? I, I know you're, you're 
lobbying or you're working on white papers, maybe lobbying Congress. Uh, but are those actually the steps involved in creating this essential worker category? I th- Well, for me at this stage, I'm just talking to everyone and anyone mm-hmm. that I think might be remotely interested in this okay. and looking for what I call co-conspirators. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I've recently made connection with the National Association of Activity Professionals and Alicia Tag. Mm-hmm. And so that that gives me an audience, a wide audience. But the thing that's I've never had to convince an activity director that this is a good thing. It's the owner operators that need to be convinced. Mm-hmm. And so and it can't be done. This can't be done as a side sideshow. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you can't throw this in the lap of the activity director. Yeah. You really need to have on your staff someone that has been certified and trained as a manager of volunteers. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't hire we wouldn't hire a nurse that hadn't been to nursing school, I don't think. And we certainly wouldn't hire a DON that didn't have some expertise, you know, right. in management. Yes. And, you know, and so it's got to be the same kind of mindset. Yeah, and it's 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 not too impossible. You know, you think about an, an independent nursing facility, but then you think about how many conglomerates there are out there. How many uh, corporations own many nursing homes? So for them to hire one, start with one volunteer manager, is really not out of the realm of possibility. No. No. Uh, again, though, uh, you know, money's tight. And so I, I get that. Yeah. And uh, particularly in the rural areas, they're they're dying. I mean, it's just it's horrible. Uh, I talked to one administrator a couple of years ago in rural Nebraska. He was rehiring his retired staff mm-hmm. because he couldn't he couldn't get anyone to move to his little town in Western Nebraska to, mm-hmm. to be, a, you know, to do the nursing or the CNA or, you know, whatever. And so it's a pretty tough, pretty tough situation. So uh, what I'm suggesting is what they do in hospice. Mm-hmm. Hospice is required to submit 5%. When they submit their, for reimbursement, 5%, right. 5% of their services have to be, docu- and it has to be documented. So yes, I I know that too well, having worked in the hospice for a long yeah, time. I'm not, I'm, yeah, right, I'm talking 5% to the... 5% of all care must be documented to be done by volunteers as per CMS, Medicare, Medicaid for reimbursement. <laughs> yeah, I think I, <laughs> I think I dream that at night sometimes. Oh, gosh, all right. Well, couldn't, can't truth, we do something similar with yeah. the nursing home? I don't know. Anyway, but the idea is, is that some kind of reimbursement, something coming back to the nursing home that would uh, motivate the owner operator to do this. I don't think we have to convince the staff, even the nursing staff, uh, for the most part. When I talked with the nurses, they were very grateful for the volunteers that we were sending because how many times is a call light going off or a call button going off just because a person wants somebody to talk to or wants some kind of attention? My uh, thinking is that there'd be fewer call lights. 
But I, but I think you hit on something. I mean, if there's reimbursement involved, if there's some kind of a tax incentive, if there's if money could possibly, sadly, but whatever, yeah. you know, be a motivating factor, then then all the benefits uh, would become obvious as people jump on board because it's getting people to jump on board and seeing the benefits and seeing how they would. Um, mm-hmm. You know, actually, like you say, they'd have less harried CNA staff, have less harried nurses and and therapists mm-hmm. than that. So, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe essential worker becomes a reimbursable mm-hmm. uh, part yeah. of what they submit. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. And it should be an ongoing uh, thing as well, because. What, uh, just because the pandemic now is subsiding doesn't mean that social isolation is going away. Uh, in fact, I was talking to uh, one person. They said social isolation didn't start with the pandemic. I mean, that's been going on forever. Yeah. And so so uh, this isn't something then it's just a one time during a pandemic, but this is something that should be continuous. And uh, one of the stories I like to tell uh, is about Chuck. And I have this in my book, too. It's a really neat. But Chuck was a, a very successful uh, businessman, and uh, he retired young. He retired at 55. He was driving a school bus. He took a job, part-time job driving school bus because he loves kids. You know, he didn't need the money. He just wanted to hang out with kids, so he, he was driving a <laughs> school bus. And uh, But anyway, he found out about me and what I was doing. He goes, can I help you? And I said, yeah, sure. I said, and so he went through our training and we assigned him to a nursing home and he was there for eight years and uh, until he passed away, actually, he had a, something happened. I don't know what, but anyway, but he called me one day. He says, I got to tell you this story. He said, I got home from my visit at the nursing home. And I realized that I had skipped one of the people that I was supposed to visit. And I felt so bad. I went back to the nursing home and I went to this woman's room and I began to apologize and saying, I'm really sorry. I forgot to come see you today. And she said, stop it, Chuck. She goes, you don't have to do this. She goes, I can hear you walking the halls. I know your footsteps and that's enough. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) And I And I thought to myself, I thought, how, where do you have to be that you can derive comfort? From from someone's footsteps. Hearing the footsteps. Chuck is in the building. Oh, my gosh. How many people get a story like that told to them? I know. And so, but it just really speaks to the power of these visits to mitigate those feelings of disconnectedness and loneliness yeah, and, and uselessness. I used to visit a 90-year-old gentleman. He said, I feel so useless. All I do is I sit here and watch soap operas all day. He was a retired uh, accountant. Mm. So he was he's a smart cookie. And I said, mm-hmm. well, I'm really glad you're here. I said, I'm learning a lot from you. He goes, what are you learning? And I said, well, how to problem solve for one thing, you know, and, um, oh, and then, uh, so I had him write his story. He wrote he wrote about his life. I had him writing about that. We were talking about that. Mm-hmm. But the idea is, is that people, they're just languish. Yeah. And, and if you're not into bingo, 
you're kind of out of luck. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I have nothing against bingo, you know. Yeah, no, no. We're not disparaging not, bingo here. A lot of people play bingo and they love bingo and, yeah. and knock yourself great. out. But if you roll me into a bingo game, I'll play the game, but I don't think I'm going to get a whole lot of feeling of connectedness or... <laughs> No, <laughs> you know, I'm not even going to play well, to tell you the truth. Right. Like, so, eh, whatever. Right. You know, uh, yeah, just, it just goes to show you that so many people have so many facets to them, so much to offer. And we're we're mm-hmm. sadly relegating them to a corner of the world mm-hmm. where they can't share nor grow nor teach all right in uh in my book i interview a volunteer that's up in canada and uh, they had a uh thing called uh and i'm not, i'm going to say this but i can't remember the acronym that's too bad it's called please mm-hmm. and it was training pairs of volunteers to make personalized visits and to to create personalized activities for okay. residents and that's mm-hmm. all they, they just go from room to room spend like a half hour maybe 40 minutes mm-hmm. with a person and get to know them and then do something with them that had meaning mm-hmm. well this one woman um the resident was an artist i guess fairly well known in canada moving into the nursing home she became very depressed she didn't want anything to do with her art and so this volunteer in a very non-threatening way but general persistence kept saying well can you can you teach me a little bit about the art you know and she brought some paints and some paper well the end of the story is the woman paints this beautiful painting that's now hanging in the nursing home you know and but this volunteer over time and just that gentle persistence Mm-hmm. was able to draw her back out and now she's painting again and so Aww. you know and so this is the to me the uh, the power and the efficacy if that's the word of the mm-hmm. volunteer to really address depression and again you know if someone's clinically depressed i'm not suggesting that they shouldn't be right. under the care of a counselor a geriatric counselor but but certainly the volunteer visiting from week to week and being with this person, mm-hmm. which they were able to draw her out yeah, and uh, reconnect her with her art. Yeah. You know? You're not talking about um, clinical depression. You're talking about isolation and the lack of socialization right. and the lack of meaning in life, right? which our volunteers can certainly, and we, we've both seen this over and over again, how our volunteers can tap into that because they do focus on that human being and they're with great training and great, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, practice and that they can really, really become an advocate. You know, and we're talking a lot about the benefit to the resident, but I've had volunteers come to me saying, this has really changed the way I think about life. I talk to my kids a little different. I hug my wife a little more. And it really it puts things into perspective, I think. Yeah. Uh, so there's that side of the coin as well mm-hmm. that, that it has an impact on the volunteer as well. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, you know, when you, you talked about how you had maybe 40% of people uh, who went through training 
actually stay. But think about the 60%. Was that a waste of time? Absolutely not. Because I remember so many volunteers saying, oh my gosh, you know, this type of training just really changed the way I interact with my family and friends. And it's mm-hmm. enhanced my life so incredibly much. Right. You know? Yeah. I, and And as far as that 60%, uh, we never just said, okay, sorry, you don't fit. Yeah. We had a list of organizations that we would recommend them to. And so, for example, the Office on Aging had like a lot of episodic uh, things going on, maybe a garden, they were doing some gardening or like I said, some housework, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of older adults, you know, they're not able to, you know, take care of their home as well as they used to. And so, you know, we, we had referrals like that. We, we, we would refer them to other organizations where they could be a better fit. Then I, I think I, on several occasions, I had people come back a year later and say, you know, I couldn't do it then, but I think I can do mm-hmm. this now again. So I, we weren't just turning people out onto the street. And the other organizations benefited from the fact that they had this in-depth training. Mm-hmm. We uh, traded. We actually. I was just going to say we actually traded people because I would awesome. get calls. I would get calls from uh, people over at the office on aging saying, "Hey, this person's looking for a long-term commitment," and I said, "Okay, send them over." You know, and right. uh, so we were actually trading. But have you ever thought that you know within a community that the volunteer managers could get together and then just do really good in-depth training for all volunteers and then you know Mm -hmm. each one take an area in which they had expertise like maybe disaster and then active Mm -hmm. listening or reflective listening for one and then you have this pool of volunteers who are just so well trained and and that's what kind of uh surprises me um I started, uh, I wrote a course uh, for the University of Nebraska, Volunteer Management and Aging Services. And uh, so this will be the second year that I've taught it. But in the process of writing the course, then I was meeting with volunteer managers and talking about, you know, what would you want your people to know and, and that, you know, that sort of thing. But I was really surprised to find out how little interaction there was between the managers. And now they see this course as a focal point. So what I'm doing is I'm requiring my students as part of the course to connect to one of these. I have a list of volunteer managers to connect with one of them and shadow them for the semester. And then at the end of the semester, they write a, a paper, uh, mm-hmm. a reflection paper. What, what did you learn? What were the challenges? What were things that they were doing really well? What were things that you thought they could improve on? Mm-hmm. You know, and so on and so on. But the idea is trying to create this community um, of volunteer managers. So I found that in social work too. I don't. I was really surprised. Social workers don't really get together unless maybe it was just unique to Nebraska or Omaha. I don't know. I mean, there there's organizations, you know, the, mm-hmm. but just on a regular basis. Now the activity directors, on the other hand, they're meeting they- all the. All they the, do get together, yeah. They're very active. And I love talking to those groups, by the way, because you you just can't hardly get a word in edgewise. You're the guest speaker, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I've been to them, too, and they're like, oh, 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 oh. they have so much to share. And I'm like, this is great. I know, right. <laughs> I know, it's, it's funny. Huh? It's uh, great. But anyway, um, yes, uh, uh, I, I'm open to all kinds of ideas uh, as far as, 
And I think that's an interesting, that's an interesting, um, I have to think about that, how that would work. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping this year, I mean, last year was a dud because I was hoping to get out to the nursing homes this year and talk about this, you know, this stuff and just take a temperature here in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. as to what's going on. But of course the pandemic put the kibosh on all that. So I'm hoping this year, I'll be able to make more personal. Con- I like to make personal connections, you know, uh, just calling somebody. It's like, yeah, okay, who is this guy? You know, <laughs> I want them to see me, uh, you know, right. You know, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay. <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, no, really. So, I'm, okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to say crazy things, but I'm not crazy. You know, <laughs> to reserve judgment, but I, yeah, right. I think I'm okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> But anyway, uh, but I do, I like to show up with like a Starbucks or something, you know, and um, some brochures and things to say, hey, this is what's going on and just get to know people uh, and uh, create that. But I think in uh, what we did in Omaha with Community 360, it was a standalone organization recruiting volunteers. And so we were actually having nursing homes sending their volunteers to us for the training and then we would send them back. So that was interesting, too, because from my standpoint, because as a trainer, they would come with their experiences. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like a team effort. It was like, OK, this is what I'm presenting. And then they would say, well, this is how it happens at our place, though. And so then there was like, OK, how do we adjust what I'm giving you mm-hmm. to fit your circumstance and so on? And so there was a lot of. Exactly. Uh, and then we did a lot for the staff, like for National Nursing Home Week, uh, instead of trying to do things for the residents, uh, we worked with a local uh, grocery chain and we would deliver six foot sandwiches mm-hmm. for the staff. We'd, we'd buy lunch for everybody. Nice. And then, of course, we had donors that would cover the, the cost, which was great. And then this grocery, they would actually deliver it and set it up. It was really neat. And yeah. uh, But it, we wanted to make sure that the staff understood how much we appreciated what we they were doing and we didn't want them to have the perception that we were sending people in there to spy on them to you know critique what they were doing you know we're not the enemy we're your friends we're here to support you and and uh, so on so we had a pretty good rapport with the staff as well and that's important well we well, like i said we wanted to make sure the nursing staff didn't think that we were spying on them you know right you always have to have one. We had one person go in and was telling the nurse how to do her job. And then I got a phone call and then we had to have a little heart to heart talk with a volunteer. You know, <laughs> this is not why we sent you in there. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, this is not your job. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I can uh, remember a few incidents. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, in 20 some years though, I mean, you only, I only had maybe one, I can think of one. There might have been two, but I, one stands out. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, uh, but but when you when you take it in in terms of statistics, I mean, it's so incredibly low mm-hmm. of incidents that we have with volunteers versus the amount of work they're doing. Right. It's like minuscule. Well, that's I'm glad you you brought that up because you know people will say, well, what about liability? Huh. And I'll say, well, what about it? Yeah. I said, what do you do with your employee? How do you treat it with your employee? You you identify risks. Mm-hmm. You write policies. This is, you can do this, but you can't do this. 
and so on and so on. It's the same thing. And when you look at the performance, I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but the the uh, history of volunteers versus the history of staff, there's far more lawsuits against staff than there are against volunteers. And that isn't, you know, again, I'm not disparaging staff. It's just that no. the volunteer, in my opinion, is coming because they want to be there. They're probably going to be a lot, very conscientious about what they're doing and to follow the training that they were given, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And so, again, like I said, in 25 years, if I had three people that I had to address, <clears throat> and even then what they did wasn't, like, life-threatening. It was just, right. you, know, yeah. you know, criticizing a nurse wasn't, you know, life-threatening, but it was not right. <laughs> what they should be doing. Yeah. And, and then we had one that was asking for bus change, and no, we can't mm-hmm. do that. My point, I guess, is the liability. I in I talk about that uh, in the book. There's five reasons why we can't do this, yeah. uh, and liability is one of them. Right. And then volunteers are unreliable, and uh, volunteer programs are not sustainable. I hear oh, that yeah. one all the time, and um, so on. I can't remember what the other two are now, but anyway. <laughs> but you wrote the book. Here, let me let me check my book. <laughs> Well, policy is one of them. You know, regulations policy right. is one of them. And then... Um, is one of them we just don't want to? Yeah, budget. That's it. Budget, budget of course. How, how can we forget budget? Yeah, right. So anyway, but all of those can be addressed. The way I put it is, you know, in fact, I had an administrator call me one day and he said, hey, I've got this gal that's working part-time and uh, she's looking for something to do a few hours a week. What if we start a volunteer program? And I said, no, don't do it. I said, in six months from now, it'll crash and burn. Mm-hmm. I said, it can't be like a two-hour-a-week hobby. And uh, so uh, we didn't do it. I, 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 didn't, I don't know if he went on to try and do something, but there's no point. If you don't, if you don't, put some real effort into it, some real thought and planning, then it's just not going to work. And the way I say, if you don't put air in your tires, they don't work so good. Yeah. If it's an afterthought, you don't put the effort in. If you if you think that it's just easy, breezy, just put someone in and everything's going to be fine, then you are sadly mistaken. All right. And, uh, and I feel for the uh, activity directors and people where they get saddled with this responsibility, you know, they're trying, they're trying to create an atmosphere for 100, 150 people, maybe who knows how many people in the nursing home. And then they have this added on. And uh, in talking with them, um, they just don't have time to, mm-hmm. to give it the effort that it needs. Yeah. Now, maybe in larger nursing homes, it's true, but your typical nursing home, your 100-bed nursing home, no, it's just, it doesn't work so well. There are a few exceptions where I've seen where the community, the surrounding community has become very involved. Somebody in the community has uh, really taken that on to champion uh, supporting the nursing home. But uh, by and large, it falls in the activity director's lap and then they're saddled with, you know, and so I've talked, and again, not to disparage anybody, um, mm-hmm. but in this last study that I did, uh, there were activity directors that had no idea how many volunteers were coming in or what they were doing other than they were on the calendar. I, I had to sit with them in their calendar and just go through and try to guesstimate like hours and, and number of volunteers and that sort of thing. They've got a ton of other things to do, not to mention all the documenting, the MDS documenting that has to happen. Right. 
Okay, so if if someone wants to talk to you, get in touch with you, join you on this crusade or Yeah, that's it. Crazy town, town journey. It's like it's like Don Quixote. Just think of the story of Don Quixote stabbing the windmills, you know. Just... I know. <laughs> <laughs> we all know what happened to Don Quixote, so no. Okay, yeah, we don't want that. Okay. We don't but there's days when I feel like that, you know, it's just like, my goodness, you know, anyway, I'm happy to chat with anyone. And so uh, my email address, uh, Paul at volunteerleader.com. I have a website, volunteerleader.com. I have a podcast as well. Mm-hmm. And guess what it's called? Volunteerleader.com. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, what else do I have? Instagram and Facebook and all that good know, stuff, which all I that will good put in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I'm, I think that's what it takes. You know, there's, there's a saying, I, th- I can't remember who said it now. Uh, Margaret Mead, I think it was it Margaret Mead that said change comes through small, small groups with big ideas, something mm-hmm. like that. I think so. Something and also, Deepak Chopra said, great changes are preceded by chaos. So, well, we've had the chaos. We have had the chaos. Time to make some great changes. I think, well, and that's a good point. Uh, I think we're at a real key time now. I think everybody understands social isolation. And so that's not something that uh, is a new idea for anybody at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, I think this is a key time to really push the idea of having this cadre of volunteers, their sole purpose is companionship. And um, have them designated essential workers. Right. Exactly. And uh, and again, if we can train somebody to be a firefighter mm-hmm. or to go into the, the Red Cross and do these incredible things that they're doing, yeah. I know that there's people in our communities that can, can go through a, a training that probably wouldn't nearly be as complicated as fighting a fire, right? Go into the nursing home and befriend people and literally save lives. Literally. And and, and not just on, this is going to sound just cheesy and funny, but volunteers can save lives. I mean, you're right. Volunteer firefighters save lives. You know, disasters, volunteers can save lives. So mm-hmm. why can't volunteers save lives in more of a, a, this type of setting as well? And mm-hmm. become essential workers. So, uh, yeah, you have big ideas, my friend. I know. Just ask my wife. <laughs> if anybody gets a crown, she does. <laughs> you know, no, she's a, she's great. Actually, I'm very blessed. She's a service coordinator uh, for senior housing here in Philadelphia, and so we are like-minded in that regard. And uh, so I feel very, very uh, blessed to have her as a partner. The people love her. She's great. She's the, she's the boots on the ground. She's always telling these great stories, you know, about the people that she meets. And I call her the lamb that roars. She's as gentle as a lamb, but don't you mess with her old adults. (laughs) You know, she gets on the phone with Medicare and Medicaid. It's a whole different personality. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Advocate Advocate would be a uh, a, uh, uh, the the right word. A polite term for that? Yeah, yeah, right. Advocate. (laughs) I 
love it. Another Klingon. I don't know what a female Klingon. A Klingon. Klingon, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> is it okay if I mention my book? Uh, no. Yes, of course. <laughs> Of um, one of the other things I had hoped to do last year was go to a lot of conferences and give away books. Well, mm-hmm. I get they're all sitting here in my office. So uh, hopefully there'll be some in-person conferences this year. But uh, I do have a book, uh, Creating the Volunteer Force. It's on Amazon. You can get Kindle. It's wherever you buy your books. You can find it, mm-hmm. Creating the Volunteer Force. And I really go into depth about a lot of the things that we talked about today. So Absolutely. And I'll put that in show notes as well. So that right. folks can, uh, can find your, your book and, and yeah. your websites and your podcasts and all that great work that you're doing out there. Bang the pot. Make Bang. noise. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Rattle the cage. Come on. You That's know? it. That's it. The only way one, we're going to get change is if we oh. want change and we rattle. One one person said to me, because you, you're like an annoying gnat. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I said, I'll take it. <laughs> but you should meet my wife. Right? Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. You don't want to mess with. No, no, she's, no, she's, she's general as a lamb. But anyway, so I took that as a compliment. I'm an, an annoying gnat. Yeah. Well, you know what? If enough gnats, if, if enough of us annoying gnats get together, then you got a problem. Yeah, that's right. So we need to, yeah, we need to band together more, really, you know, yeah. with with common goals, well, which y'all do have common yeah, I'm, goals. I'm, I really am. Uh, seriously, I really am trying to pull together. I don't know what I would even call it. A, uh, uh, it's not. A, it won't be an organization. What a, a uh, interest group, mm-hmm. something like that. Pull together like-minded people, and then start talking about how do we make this happen. Yeah. So if um, besides contacting you, if someone knows a, a potential person who could be influential in your group, mm-hmm. they should also send that name along to you, correct? Yes, that'd be okay. great. Or talk yeah. it up and whatnot. Yeah. So, so you really need, I'm, I'm just going to throw this plug in here, you really need, Paul, for um, a good uh, centralized group of people who can mm-hmm. hopefully help make change happen. Right, exactly. And, and have a uh, conversation around this. And figure out how to, you know, where what yeah. levers we need to pull exactly. to make that happen. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Right. Great. Sounds cool. Well, my friend, thank you for this wonderful wow. podcast and all that information and your work in elevating and transforming the volunteer sector into mm-hmm. you know it's it's potential mm-hmm. we all know is there and it's just getting it to the forefront of of everyone else in the world's minds right right and there's some great things going on around the world actually you look at the UK and some of the different yeah. places there's some really good things going on and i think right. Uh, I think we can, we, and I, there's good, and I don't mean to disparage, there's a lot of good things happening in the mm-hmm. U.S. too, but I think the nursing home, we need, we need to, Do we better. need to bring that to the forefront and uh, talk about that now that people know. Yeah. yeah. 
about that. And you know what? The the nursing home, if if things happen there and we can showcase how volunteers save lives, they they help uh, you know with isolation, they're mm-hmm. they're essential workers, then that can spread to other avenues of volunteering. I mean, all volunteering is going to help one another. We 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 shouldn't sit in our silos of well, these these are my volunteers right. and this is what they do. All volunteering is mm-hmm. going to elevate other volunteering. Yes. Yes, exactly. And a lot of the people that did volunteer with us uh, were volunteering in other organizations as well, doing other things, Arbor right. or Habitat. or So they were involved in other things as well. And so they create this uh, web is the way I kind of see it, networking among groups too. So, yeah, very important. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been enlightening and fun at the same time. Yeah, good. Yeah, you have to laugh too, right? Oh, yeah. Got to have some humor in there too. Or else else we'd be crying all the time. We'd be crying at all, right? Yeah, I do a fair amount of that too. So. (laughs) Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the Volunteer Plane Talk podcast. Big thank you to Alternate Timelines for the use of their music. For more volunteer management talk, or if you just want to reach out to me, please visit my website, volunteerplanetalk.com, or you can catch me at Meridian Swift on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Until next time, this is Meridian Swift. Thank you and bye-bye.